Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Itamar Moses, who is the book writer for The Band's Visit, which is a Broadway show opened on December 8, 2016, Atlantic Theater Company, then in November 2017 on Broadway, and it closed in April 2019 after 589 performances and is now on tour around the country at the Golden Gate Theater through February 6th. Itamar Moses is also a television writer and was in the writing rooms for The Outsiders, The Affair, Boardwalk Empire, Men of a Certain Age, There are several plays in his resume, including a musical version of Fortress of Solitude by Jonathan Lethem, which we'll talk about, grew up in Berkeley, went to Yale, and is now teaching at the Tisch School at NYU. Itamar Moses, before we get into your career, I want to talk about the band's visit. I saw the film a few nights ago, so let's go back. Were you contacted to do the book, or did you discover the band's visit and say, hey, this would make a great musical? I wish I could say that I was the one who had that great insight. But no, the story is that our lead producer, a guy named Oren Wolf, saw the film at a festival in New York called the Other Israel Film Festival, which is a festival that still happens, actually. And it's you know, f- films about pockets of Israeli society, Israeli culture that we that aren't the angle that we usually see. And so that was where the, the band's visit, the film premiered in New York, I think in 2007, I want to say, when it first came out. And Oren saw it in that festival, and he sort of had the lightning bolt moment, like, I want to put this on stage. And I think he didn't know right away, should it be a play? Should it be a musical? Should it be a play with music? What, when he, what he says now is that a specific label like that didn't interest him. He just knew he wanted to put it on stage. So so he did all the work of tracking down the filmmaker, pursuing the rights, and then hiring the team, which turned out to be me as the book writer and David Yazbek as the composer and lyricist and and so on. So So I was a hired hand. At the time this all came down, you were working on Yellow Jackets at Berkeley Rep, right? Uh, it was later. Yellow Jackets was at Berkeley Rep in 2008. By the time Oren was hiring people to do the musical, it was probably, I want to say, 2013 or 2014. So at that point, I'd had you know a few plays off Broadway. I'd done, like you mentioned, some some TV work. And I'd just come off of book writing for two other musicals, Fortress of Solitude, which you mentioned, and another one called Nobody Loves You, which was a satire about reality television that I wrote with fellow Berkeley native Gabi Alter. So I think I was on, you know, various lists as like, oh, this guy is a playwright and he also does books for musicals. And I assumed at the time when I got the call to come to the meeting, 
with Oren Wolf and with Hal Prince, who was attached at the time to produce it and direct. And he, he ended up leaving the project later because of scheduling conflicts. But when I first got that email, actually, I assumed it had something to do with the fact, in addition to my credits, that you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a child of Israeli immigrants and I have sort of ties to the region. And so I thought, oh, that's why they thought of me. And later, Oren told me that it had absolutely nothing to do with it. And just they were considering various people and my name came up. And so they brought me in to meet with them about it. So I, I had an incorrect assumption that maybe made me more confident than I should have been, but it all worked out. What was it like meeting Hal Prince? It was great. I mean, I've told this story before, but the truth is that musicals are really, really hard. And having just done two of them, I was not looking for another one to do. I was sort of like, well, maybe I'll put musicals aside for a while because it's such a difficult form to work in. And then I got an email from, I think, Hal Prince's assistant saying, hey, come to this meeting. And I was that was why I went. I thought, well, you don't turn down the opportunity to meet Hal Prince. And it didn't disappoint. I mean, he was you know, in his late 80s, 90 at the time, I don't know exactly, but he still had this twinkle in his eye and a ton of energy and this very sharp mind. And it was, um, you know, he was involved in the project for the first couple of years and then remained a friend to it, you know, as for sort of from afar as we as we moved forward. And so I, it was just a real privilege to get to spend some time with him talking shop and and work with him on it for as long as, as I did. He was just sort of a really exciting person to be around. It struck me, though, Edamore Moses, that this is not really easy material to adapt. I mean, obviously, there are musicians involved, but still, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that really needs a musical. When they convince you to do it, how did they bring it to you to say, hey, this would make a great musical? Oren Wolf was very smart. He sort of felt like the right team would be made up of people who saw it the way that he did. So really all he did was give me a DVD of the film, which I'd never seen. I knew of it. I'd heard of it. I was aware of it, but I hadn't actually ever watched the movie. And he just sort of handed me a DVD and said, watch this and see if you think it could be a musical and if you think you could be the person to work on it. You know, it's funny. Intellectually, I, I understand what you mean when you say that it's difficult to adapt and how do you do it? Partly because it's so, it's very quiet, it's very spare, it's very understated, and these aren't things we associate with musicals. But I have to say, when I watched it, I got it instantly. I understood why he thought it should be a musical. I mean, first of all, I understood why it could be on stage, which was because it's made up largely of sort of naturalistic encounters between small groups of people in like fixed locations, right? So this is something that you could do on stage. And then because music isn't just a sort of diegetic part of the story, because there's a literal band, it's also a story about communication and the difficulty of communication. The plot basically is about a group of Egyptian musicians who get stranded in the wrong town in Israel. They're supposed to go to a large city to perform a concert. They end up in this tiny, tiny town in the middle of the desert, and they're stranded there for one night and the locals sort of take them in. So it's a story in which the two groups of main characters don't share a first language. Half of them speak Arabic, half of them speak Hebrew, and then they all speak sort of broken, halting English. So in a story where that's the engine of the plot, music, which is a sort of form of communication, emotional communication, connection that transcends language, uh, suddenly becomes this really powerful 
metaphor. So I thought, okay, that sort of justifies it being a musical. I also think that oftentimes when people identify what source material could be or could not be a musical, they tend to gravitate towards things that have the hallmarks of what we think musicals ought to do. They're bombastic or they're sentimental or they're really, really heightened. And I think counterintuitively, it's sometimes better to to choose something that pulls in the opposite direction, that's very dry, that has some darkness to it, that has some subtlety to it. So I don't know, for whatever reason, I sort of felt like I got it. I got why Oren wanted it to be on stage and why why it should be a musical. The other thing I'll say is that you, you said it seems like a difficult adaptation, as opposed to the two musicals I had just done, one of which, Nobody Loves You, was an original story, right? So we had to sort of invent everything. And then Fortress of Solitude was based on a dense 500-page novel. And fiction writing is really, really different from the stage. I mean, it's deceptively different because it's all about you know, the subjective experience of being in a particular point of view, which is literally the hardest thing to do on stage. And, you know, they can sprawl for hundreds of pages and have tons of events and things have to be much more compact and immediate on stage. So to go from that to something that was already a really well-constructed, you know, 90-minute piece of dramatic storytelling, it was a much, much easier adaptation than the one I had just done. It sounds to me that one of the issues is that how do you put in songs in English when nobody is speaking English or they're only speaking broken English and making sure the audience understands material that is not in a language they understand, like Arabic or Hebrew? That's a really good question. And you're sort of touching on a larger formal question that we had to wrestle with about the piece, which is about what are the rules of language? And we basically decided that there's two different rules, one for speaking and one for singing. For speaking, I was really committed to the idea that the characters should speak whatever language they really would speak in that moment and that we wouldn't translate things with you know, supertitles or anything. That when the Egyptian characters spoke to each other, unless they had a good reason not to, they would speak in Arabic. And when the Israeli characters spoke to each other, they'd speak Hebrew unless they had a good reason not to. And that the cross-cultural conversations could thus be in English. And then you sort of nudge things just enough, you know, justify why groups would speak English amongst themselves here or there, just so the audience has enough information. And it's actually sort of surprising how much people can get just from context. And that was sort of a fun game to play with the audience and a fun formal constraint. With the singing, some of the songs are from a member of one community to a member of the other or or multiple members of the other, right? And so in that case, the same rules apply. An Israeli character is trying to communicate something to a group of Arab characters, vice versa. And so they sing in the same sort of broken English that they would speak in. And, and there's a poetry to that, actually, that David Yazbek took really good advantage of. And then the exception is when people sing sort of an internal emotional exploration If you were to follow the same rules as the speech is following, they would, you know, sing to themselves in Arabic or in in Hebrew, and and most of the audience would be shut out. So it's sort of a a magic of theater convention where those songs are just in fluent English is basically the rule. 
those kinds of you know rules and what the exceptions are to them is like part of the fun of constructing something like this. Let's get into the construction then. There are different ways to create a musical. For instance, one is to write the play and then work with the composer lyricist to remove scenes and replace them with songs. And then there's another way, which would be to insert songs at a certain point, like, okay, this is when the person sings about their feelings. How did you and David Yazbek work on that? It's a good question. You know, every musical I've worked on has unfolded slightly differently, having partly to do with the makeup of the team and partly to do with what the source material was. In the case of the band's visit, because there's already this really good movie, the first thing I did was simply adapt it as though it were a play. I took the film and wrote a script with no songs for how you would tell this story on stage. I didn't even really add anything. Later, various threads of the story changed or there were additions to them and, and other things. But my very, very first draft, I, I, the only sort of challenge I posed to myself was, let me just figure out how to tell this story on stage. And then David and I sat down with that script and sort of went through it page by page and did one of the things you described, basically, which is we sort of circled all the moments where we thought there ought to be songs, either you know, cannibalizing a particular moment of scene or a speech or sort of drilling down into a, an emotional moment, as you said, where we would sort of pause. One thing that Yazbek says is that a song is the theatrical equivalent of a close-up, you know, and as, as opposed to in a film, you can't actually zoom the camera in on a character's face, right, and, and pick up all the things that that picks up, but you can have them sing a song about their feelings, which has uh, maybe an analogous effect. So that's how we did it is I wrote a script and then we built up the songs on kind of the chassis of that script. But that's one of the privileges of adapting something that's already so well thought out is that I, I could never have done that unless David was willing to wait, you know, three or four years for me to, to completely break an all new story and then figure out where the songs go. So with a totally original piece of material, that's not usually the way it works. You're sort of figuring out the story and the song moments together. But in this case, we could do it one after the other. In a sense, this is, I don't want to say easier, but because you had the template, you were able to kind of expand on that. You, on some level, that template allowed you more ability to go deeper is that right? I think that's right. I mean, this is why most musicals, even musicals that we don't think of being adaptations, are in fact adaptations. I mean, Oklahoma is an adaptation. Hamilton is an adaptation from the particular biography of Hamilton. Like, the reason is it's a hard enough form to begin with, and story structure is its own challenge. And so, if you can start with at least some sort of structure, that kind of works. And maybe you can make it work better or adjust it for the needs of the stage, but it at least gives you somewhere to start. But like a good metaphor is maybe it's like, you can only jump as high as the like sort of elasticity of the trampoline, right? Launches you. And that underlying story structure is is your trampoline. So there's a very sound structure to the movie. And I took a, if it's not broken, don't fix it approach and only expanded or adjusted things where it, where it really seemed to help what, what we were trying to do. Edamar Moses, in terms of getting deeper and digging into this material, one of the advantages you talk about in an interview you recently gave 
You said it's much safer to talk about things with someone you don't know and never will see again. That idea, which is at the crux of the band's visit, all of these stories kind of gave you an in to how you were going to maneuver the songs into the stories. I think so. I mean, I think that insight came out of just asking myself what it is about the movie that seems to work. Why does this encounter between these two groups of people trigger a shift in everybody's lives? And to be clear, it's not as if, you know, everyone has a a giant, clear, easily articulable problem, and then they meet these other people and their problems are solved. It's not that at all. It's, It's more a story in which everybody is a little bit or a lot stuck in some way in the ways that we can get stuck in our lives emotionally, professionally, we sort of reach these points where the gears start to grind and we start to, to get a little static and, and something about this encounter gets everybody a little bit unstuck. And I think the reason why is you can't sort of move forward or unstick yourselves from those moments in your life without like an honest look at yourself without some sort of, internal inventory, right, that that lets you see things clearly so that you even know what the situation is so that you can move forward. And there's something about being around the same people all the time. Everyone has sort of built up, you know, the narrative around themselves and the narrative around everybody else. And everyone ex- kind of accepts everyone else's illusions, right? No one wants to rock the boat. And then this new group of people comes in and they're seeing you with completely clear eyes. You know, they don't know what story you've concocted to explain yourself. And so because they see you with this fresh perspective, you're forced, as uncomfortable as it might be, you're forced to see yourself that way. Maybe the way it connects to the music is that those moments of emotional illumination, be they communications between people or things people are doing when they look at themselves, it's triggered by these brand new pairs of eyes on everybody. Edamore Moses, a couple more questions about this, then I want to go into your career a little bit. Sure. You finally pull it together and it opens at the Atlantic Theater Company. Then there's a break for about a year where you rework it. What was that like? It was really exciting because, I mean, apart from the fact that I'd never had a show move to Broadway before, so it was exciting on that level, but nothing teaches you more about what a piece of theater needs, where it's working or where it's not working, than watching it over and over again with a series of audiences, right? Something about the intelligence of the collective group mind that forms when an audience watches a a piece of theater really exposes what's working and what's not working about the piece. So to get to do it for a couple of months off Broadway, then kind of shut it down and talk amongst ourselves, among the creative team about what changes we wanted to make. And then knowing we were going to get another crack at it, uh, it was a real privilege because, you know, you usually have a preview period and you can make changes during previews, but what you can do is actually quite limited because you you have a couple hours of rehearsal in the afternoon, then everyone does the show that night, then you take notes on that and you come in and maybe change, you know, a couple things in your rehearsal the next day, but you're trying to make book changes and you're trying to make music changes and there's a choreographer who's trying to make changes and the director's trying to redirect this or that part of the scene. And, you know, before you know it, the hour, two hours you have in the afternoon are gone and you've only made, you know, one of the 17 changes you wanted to make based on the preview the night before. So, so to actually get to sort of step away 
and then make any changes in the script I wanted to make and, and for David to get to make any changes in the score he wanted to make and the designers to get to rethink aspects of the set or the lights or what have you. Um, it was great because then by the time we went into rehearsal for Broadway, the whole thing had taken a little bit of a leap forward based on the lessons that we'd learned. And then, you know, we had another period of several weeks of previews on Broadway before the official opening. It really let us sort of tighten the screws on the thing. How do you know if something's working or not working? You know, that's a good question. I think, I hope it's an instinct that gets honed the more that you do it. There's a general answer and there's a specific answer with this show. The general answer is that you can really feel it in the room. There's an electricity when the sort of collective mind of an audience links up and connects to what's happening on stage. It may or may not literally mean that people are leaning forward, but there's a feeling as though the audience is leaning forward. It's an electricity in the room. And I feel like it's so palpable that I think I could feel it if I were not even watching the show. If I were just like sitting in the back corner of the theater facing the wall, I think I could tell if what's sort of throbbing in the air electrically is a feeling of engagement between the audience and the piece. And you can feel it just as clearly and very painfully when it goes away. And when you watch the show again and again every night and okay, they didn't get that joke this time, but the next night they do, that's one thing. But if you know you get to whatever scene it is, right, in in your play or in your musical, oh, in this scene every single night, you can feel the audience engagement, the electricity of their engagement ebb away. And then you lose them and then you kind of get them back here. And okay, why, and then you all have to figure out why did we lose them? Is it a problem with that scene? Is it? So it's that process. It's happening sort of, I think, on a deeper level than did this joke get a laugh or did that surprise get a gasp? It's more a collective feeling. And then with the band's visit specifically, there's something very mysterious about it. There's an emotional experience that people started to have, not right away, but maybe the second or third week of previews off Broadway. And we were just making little changes, you know, things that we thought could be better, things that were unclear, things that we wanted to deepen or, you know, refine. And then there was a point two or three weeks into previews where the audience would come out at the end and everyone seemed like very shaken, like very emotionally wrung out in this way that... We weren't sure how we had done it, and we we knew that it was the emotional impact we were going for and that the feeling we felt from the movie, but we were just kept making these little moves trying to make everything... The way our director, David Cromer, described it was that like each section of the story is sort of handing the baton forward to the next one, and it can move at this very contemplative pace as long as that momentum is very fluid, right, was the feeling he was going for. We all recognized it. Um, we couldn't point to mathematically in some way to like this or that change. I could probably remember if I really thought what the last two or three changes we made were, but it felt like everything mattered. Everything we'd done up to that point added up to this experience. And I think in a way, the smartest thing we did was recognize that moment when it happened and, and take our hands off of it, right? Like, I think there was a preview late in previews at, at the Atlantic off-Broadway where we felt this thing happened we'd been trying to make happen in the show, this emotional impact. The director kept going, but I think David Yazbek and I stopped going to previews after that. We just, like, let it go. And then, we, you know, we made more changes later for Broadway, but they were all sort of in service of what we'd already 
made. So, so I don't know. I think there's a speech in um, the play Six Degrees of Separation where uh, the main character describes going to, to an open house at an elementary school and, you know, the second or third grade teacher has all of this artwork up by these children and they all look like masterpieces. And the, and the guy says, like, what's your secret? How do you get these, you know, eight-year-old kids to do these masterpieces? And she says, I know when to take their drawings away from them. So I think it was a little bit like that. We knew when to let it go. Do you think all your work in the writers' rooms on those different TV shows helped you understand a little bit more about the principles of what works and what doesn't? I think it was really relevant to working on musicals specifically because they're so collaborative. Being in TV writers' rooms taught me a lot of things. One of them is not to be so precious about your first idea. Like you have an initial impulse and you're like, oh, that's the answer. And then you you go with that and you might be right. But doing time in, in TV writers' rooms will teach you that it's almost always worth putting that aside and seeing, well, what's the second idea? What's the third idea? What's the seventh idea? And you may come back to that first impulse, but with greater confidence, knowing it really is the best way to go. Or sometimes you'll find something deeper or more or more surprising. So it definitely taught me that. And then for musicals specifically, they're so collaborative. I mean, if I'm writing a play, the creative department, right, is me. Like I'm in charge of the script and any changes to the script and no one can change the script without me being okay with it and making that change myself. In a musical, I may have control over the spoken dialogue and the story structure, which is no small thing, but I'm not writing the music. I'm not you know, staging the choreography. I'm not working on the lyrics unless it's a show on which I happen to be co-writing the lyrics, which I don't always do and I didn't do on the band's visit. So you're really part of this creative hive mind. It is of all the things I've done in theater, the most similar to being in a TV writer's room. And so you do learn how to take advantage of that. I mentioned the collective group mind when I was talking about audiences. There's another version of that that might happen in a writer's room or might happen in the creative team on a musical where the group is potentially better than one artist working on their own because this thing can happen where you get on a roll together and some idea like arrives that you all recognize as the right idea. And it's kind of larger than all of you and no one can quite take credit. And whatever that creative moment is that you're trying to have or the thing you're working on about the show, suddenly all these ideas start flowing. And if you can recognize that role and sort of ride it, you can get to to a better result than you could have on your own. And, and so the trick, I think, is to be humble enough to recognize that when it's happening and, you know, hitch your wagon to it instead of wanting credit, basically, instead of insisting that your idea has to be the one to go with. So, so working on musicals and working in TV writers' rooms both have that quality, very much so. One difference, of course, is that while you may be able to remove your favorite words, let's say, or your favorite moment from a play if you know it isn't working, particularly when you've got a creative team. How does that work with a composer lyricist who just loves one particular songs of his, but it's not working? It's like any relationship where hopefully you have a healthy one in which you can be honest with each other. So not every creative collaboration is going to go well. Basically, I mean, you can definitely theoretically end up in a situation 
where people are sticking to or clinging to things that don't work. Hopefully you're working with people who at some point, even if it takes until the audience recognizes it, right, will eventually recognize that something needs to change, hopefully before it's too late. But I think one of the reasons Bands Visit turned out well was because we sort of shared a vision about what we were trying to do. For whatever reason, the whole team on Bands Visit was really kind of open and collaborative. I never felt like I couldn't say something to Yazbek or to David Cromer, the director, about why I thought something should be different in their work, right? But I also never felt like they were going to come to me unless they were really worried about something. I'm actually very willing to rewrite, but I felt like David Cromer always made that his last resort. He would really try to make a scene work, you know, exactly as written and then sort of come to me and say like, I think we might need a textual change to get us from A to B or whatever it is. And so I feel like there was a good balance of people. You don't want people who are completely inflexible and you also don't want people who cave the moment they get a note from anyone about anything. And so I think we had a good balance of the core members of the team being able on the one hand to bend and on the other hand to stick to their guns when they thought it was really important. I mean, a really great example that, that has come up in interviews before is that, you know, uh, people have different favorite songs in the show, but I think the most common answer when people are asked what their favorite song in the show is, is a song right in the middle of the show called Um Kultum, which is about the singer Um Kultum and the movie star Omar Sharif. And it's the main character of the show, Dina, the Israeli woman who runs the cafe that's sort of at the center of the show, talking about her childhood and her sort of fascination with um, with Egyptian culture and, and Arab culture. And that song, Yazbek wrote it for an early draft. And then we sort of logicked our way out of keeping it in the show temporarily. We decided that the Dina character had maybe sung enough times by the time we got to that scene and the other character in the scene should have a song there. And so for a while, that song wasn't in the show. And then Yazbek sort of said, you know, I think I think that song's really good and belongs there. And as soon as we put it back in, we all recognized that he was right. That story to me reveals two things. One is that he was willing to cut a song which, you know, sort of on its own terms was a really exquisite song on the chance that it might not be what served the show in that moment, and then was able to advocate for restoring it when a couple of months down the road, we were like, well, the show doesn't seem to work as well without it. Edamore Moses, let's change gears and look a little at your career. Uh, you were born in 1977, grew up in Berkeley. How did you get involved in theater and playwriting? Did you go to places like Berkeley Rep or Aurora Theater? I did. I was interested in writing from a pretty young age. When I was nine or 10, I was a big reader and I read a lot of genre fiction, fantasy novels, science fiction. And so my first ambition was I thought I was going to write fantasy novels. I still may, you know, who knows? Maybe it's my second act. But theater came a little bit later. I mean, I, I, I did, my older sister did plays at Bay Area Youth Theater back in the 80s, and I did one. And I liked theater and I liked plays, but I didn't really get extremely interested until high school. And a couple of things happened. One was that Gabby Alter, who I later would write Nobody Loves You With, 
had a small theater company in the early 90s, the mid 90s, called Emerald Rain Productions. And he and this writer, Dominic Ma, and a sort of group of like these kind of fascinating artsy kids from Berkeley High who were maybe a couple of years older than me, they would do these sort of hilarious sci-fi dystopian rock musicals at Laval's Subterranean Theater in Berkeley, this little black box theater under Pizza Place. So I would go see those and I thought, well, if this is theater, count me in. I mean, it was hilarious and smart and like so weird. And then the other thing that happened in the mid 90s was Tony Kushner's play Angels in America, you know, had its big splash on Broadway. And then I saw it. I know it had been in San Francisco before at the Eureka, but I didn't see it back then. I saw it later when ACT did it in 94, 95. Those two things, these sort of kids I knew doing what I thought was really interesting work, and then this incredibly powerful play, I think those two things together pushed me towards trying it, trying playwriting. And so I was by then seeing things at Berkeley Rep, things at ACT, until I went to college. And then as an undergraduate, I wasn't a theater major, I was a humanities major, but theater was my main extracurricular activity in college, being in plays and putting on my own plays and, you know, being in other people's plays. And so after four years of that, by the time I moved to New York, I was, I was pretty hooked. According to Wikipedia, which often isn't right, <laughs> your, first, <laughs> your first play was something called, a short play called Dorothy and Alice. Who knows what the exact chronology is of what order I wrote what in, but Dorothy and Alice was a, a 10-minute play that I, I did in, in a little festival in Manhattan. And it's about Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz and Alice from Alice in Wonderland having lunch in an elementary school playground. That's <laughs> the, the premise of that little play. So I, that, and that one stayed still around, you know, because these two character plays with young characters stick around because there's all of these high school, you know, high school drama competitions or whatever. And so I think that one still gets done by like high school kids who are like, want to do like 10 minute two-handers in competition. At a certain point, 2010, you moved on to television. Uh, Was your first show Men of a Certain Age? Yeah, that was my first job in TV. How did that come about? How did you wind up in TV and did you have to move to LA? It's so funny because the landscape has changed so much since my career started. When I was in graduate school at NYU, which was in the early 2000s, like 2001, 2002, 2003, the graduate program at Tisch, which is where I went to grad school, they had a playwriting concentration and they had a a screenwriting concentration and they had TV writing classes, but they did not have a, you couldn't major in TV writing. It was not a co-equal branch, right, of, of the department, which is so amazing to look back on because now, if anything, TV is king, right? And so when I came out of school and started writing plays, that golden age of TV that maybe launched with The Sopranos and Six Feet Under on HBO was just starting. I mean, those shows were still on the air. And so I think around 2010, which is, as you mentioned, when I started writing in TV, and I think specifically because Six Feet Under had employed so many playwrights, as that kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, sort of psychologically complex uh, cable hour-long <laughs> storytelling, right? Which was the first form in which that that kind of TV happened. Soprano, Six Feet Under, I mentioned, but, you know, Deadwood, The Wire, like all this stuff. I think some of those 
shows, started looking for playwrights specifically as a talent pool. So if you were a playwright who was having your first off-Broadway productions in 05, 06, 07, 08, which is when I was having them, TV sort of came calling a little bit. They were interested in what playwrights were doing. So I think that that benefited my generation of playwrights a lot. I got film and TV agents after I had my first few plays. I could use those scripts as samples. And Men of a Certain Age had had its first season and they were staffing for their second season. And I think they were looking for a playwright specifically. They wanted to add a playwright to the staff. And because a couple of my early plays were about men sitting around complaining about their lives, um, I didn't even have to write a sample for them. That was the sort of, you know, it was a wonderful show. Not a lot of people know it. It's on HBO Max now, so a new audience can discover it. Men of a Certain Age was this very melancholy, smart show about a group of male friends turning 50 and sort of dealing with the questions of mortality and if they'd done what they wanted to do with their lives. And it starred Ray Romano and Andre Brower and Scott Bakula. Luckily, a couple of my plays, although they were generally about younger people, because I was only in my early 30s at the time, had some thematic overlap with that, you know, with men exploring their feelings, basically, and their disappointments. And so they read a couple of my plays as samples, and they hired me to write on season two of that show. In answer to your other question, for that job, I did have to move to LA for five months or so for the duration of that job. And and I've done that again since whenever I do a TV job where the writer's room is physically in LA, then I'll, I'll go there for the duration of the job. The next show is one of my favorites, Boardwalk Empire. Was it the same sort of hey, we want you there. Did Terrence Winters get hold of you? How did that work? Similarly, I was wrapping up my contract for Men of a Certain Age. We were winding down. And then around that same time, they were staffing the second season of Boardwalk Empire. And and it's funny because it's kind of a similar story, which is that Terry Winter had um, hired a playwright and TV writer named Howard Corder to work on season one of Boardwalk Empire. You know, when you're the showrunner of a show, it's it's not that common that you find somebody who can really sort of write the voice of the show, especially in the first season where no one knows quite what the tenor or the voice of the show is, right? And I think Terry really felt that Howard got it and um, and really valued him. And Howard was a playwright and had started as a playwright. So I think similarly, when he was staffing his second season, he he said, all right, get me some more playwrights. And so my TV agents let me know that he was looking and he read some samples of mine. It was funny because I, I was based in New York. I was heading back to New York. The show was based in New York, but I met him for the first time in LA because I was still working on Men of a Certain Age and he happened to be there. So we had lunch in LA, I think, one day and when they're hiring you for a TV show, they read your samples and that gives them the sense of you as a writer. And then when they meet you in person, it's basically just to make sure that you're not insane because they're going to have to spend, <laughs> you know, five days a week, six, seven, eight hours a day in a room with you for, you know, X number of months. And they want to make sure that you're not crazy. So for at least the duration of that hour or two hour lunch or interview, you have to successfully pretend that you're sane. On Boardwalk Empire, did you get a chance to meet and spend time with cast members like Steve Buscemi and Michael K. Williams or even Ruth Wilson or Dominic West for The Affair? On The Affair, yes, on Boardwalk Empire. I mean, we the writer's room was at Steiner Studios, which is a lot in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. A lot of shows still there where there's offices and writer's rooms and so on. 
on the upper floors and then the ground floor sound stages where whatever shows are shooting there have standing sets. So we worked upstairs at Steiner and then the standing sets for Boardwalk Empire were downstairs. I mean, the, the fake Boardwalk was in a parking lot elsewhere in Brooklyn. But, uh, you know, the other standing sets, Nucky's office and his house and the sheriff's office and so on, they were just downstairs. So once shooting began, you know, first we started writing scripts and then shooting started and we were just sort of trying to stay ahead of production. Yeah, often they would want to have at least one writer downstairs on set during the shooting of every scene to make sure that you're getting all the dialogue and also the point of the scene and the point of view and the story beat that you need to get. So someone was always down there and sometimes it was me and then you'd see them all at the read-throughs and stuff. And actually, because it was a New York-based show, a lot of those guys are from theater, like Paul Sparks, who played Mickey Doyle, had done readings of my plays before, and Michael Shannon was a theater guy. I mean, that cast was extraordinarily talented, but also just what a great group of people. I mean, it was really, it was a really special group, yeah, the cast of Boardwalk. When the show finally airs and you're seeing, you know, the green screen, how weird is that for you as a writer? If you've written the script watched what's going on downstairs and suddenly it's outdoors and this ocean and all of that. It's sort of jaw-dropping how good it looks, actually. I mean, on the one hand, it's like anything where you know how the sausage gets made. You can't see it with completely unvarnished eyes, I suppose. But the production value on that show was so high that really watching it, I was always just kind of proud to be involved. Working with someone like Steve Buscemi or Michael K. Williams, I bring up, of course, because he just died. Did you spend any time? Did you get a sense of what what they were like as people, what they are like? Steve, first of all, I learned that it's Buscemi, weirdly, but it's he pronounces his last name Buscemi. I also always assumed it was Buscemi. And he's really nice, a very sort of down-to-earth guy, you know, private, just sort of a lovely, serious actor who takes the work seriously and is, you know, no drama whatsoever. I'll tell one story about Michael Kenneth Williams, who I I didn't spend a ton of time with, but I was around him a little bit and he was always very nice. But um, the thing that really struck me was one time we went, because HBO airs a lot of boxing, right? So one time we went down to Atlantic City, the writers and the cast to watch a boxing match that HBO was airing. uh, Because, you know, the Atlantic City tie into Boardwalk Empire and so on. So we were all down there watching, watching some boxing and when the match was over and we were all sort of streaming out of this arena, I ended up just because of the, in the scrum of people walking behind Michael K. Williams and Boardwalk had just started airing. So people didn't really know him from that, but the wire was done. And so everyone adored him from his performance as Omar. And I had never seen a person get stopped by so many people on their way out of a room. And all of these people said, you know, I never do this. I would never bother an actor about anything, but you're the one person I would do this to because Omar is, you know, my favorite TV character ever. And with every single person, he stopped and thanked them and spoke really warmly to them and really sort of was not for a second, like impatient or annoyed by any of it. It was, uh, it was kind of amazing to see. So that was, that was the, the sort of strongest impression that I was left with by him. I noticed in going through IMDb, you have different titles. You you wrote an episode, you executive story editor one season, you're co-producer. Sure. Are those just kind of titles to fit salaries? 
The answer to that question is sort of wonky, granular. But yes, the easiest, the best way to think about that stuff is that it's like ranks in the military or something. Like the, every time you do a TV writing job, you basically get a title bump. So yeah, it's all about the union. Like those titles are tied to specific pay scales and so on. And so that's all it means. If you're someone who's in the writer's room, your job as staff writer or story editor or executive story editor or co-producer or supervising producer, your job's not that different, but like how you're paid and, and what you're paid is different. And it is sort of a signifier of, of your level of experience, kind of, but all the good rooms I've been in have been very egalitarian. You're listed as a consulting producer for a show that aired one season on, I think it was Peacock, Brave New World. Oh, yeah. What was your involvement with Brave New World? Minimal. I mean, consulting producer is a credit for when you're a producer level TV writer, but you have a sort of only partial, it's basically a part-time gig on the show. So for instance, I, I was also consulting producer on The Affair when I worked there. And it was because, you know, the writer's room ran for however many consecutive weeks for three, four, five months. And I did a total of, you know, I don't know, nine weeks where I would go two, three weeks at a time and made, you know, a few trips over the course of it. So consulting producer just means you're part-time basically. So on Brave New World, it was even more peripheral. I came in later. These big productions sometimes get into tricky positions where, the writer's room has already disbanded because they wrote all the scripts and then they get into production and they're making the scripts. And then you sort of realize you want to make changes or your budget starts to run out or, you know, something shifts about an actor or something and you have to do rewrites on the fly. And the showrunner is already doing so much and they have no other writers around. They have to oversee production and they can't, you know, leave production to go rewrite two or three scripts. So what I did on Brave New World is just basically help out the showrunner with some late rewrites because they were in the middle of production. I had a good time and I got to go to Wales. Edamar Moses, getting back to your career, Fortress of Solitude and Nobody Loves You were the two musicals. Fortress of Solitude did open. Is it dead now or is it going to go through more rewrites? That's a really complicated question because the very brilliant composer lyricist Michael Friedman passed away in, gosh, has it been that many years? 2017, I think. First, we did it at Dallas Theater Center in 2014, and then we did it off-Broadway at The Public that fall, and we did intend to keep working on it. Daniel and Michael Friedman and I did a workshop with some NYU grad students uh, a couple of years later where we started trying some new ideas for the show and then Michael died. And so Daniel Aachen and I both have a you know hope that the show can come back in some way. We still believe in it as a moving and, and powerful story and also maybe in some ways even more so feel like we want more people to hear Michael's music and that score specifically, which is really extraordinary. I think it's some of the best work he ever did. So the answer is sort of, it lives in a place of uncertainty now, but we have had conversations with various theaters, various artistic directors, people who are interested in helping us try to bring it back, but they were at sort of a preliminary phase and then there was a global pandemic. So we'll see. But what I can say is that, that our hope is to, is to bring it back 
but that's a hope that's both made more urgent and complicated by Michael's death. And what about Nobody Loves You? So Nobody Loves You had a regional premiere at the Globe in San Diego in, in 2012 and then was off Broadway in 2013. And yeah, Gabby Alter and I still feel like there's more life in that one. We didn't have the privilege that we had with Band's Visit where we got to like, you know, take eight months off or whatever before a Broadway transfer and make our changes. We, we didn't move Nobody Loves You beyond off-Broadway for a variety of reasons. But we had similarly all the lessons we'd learned, right, from the off-Broadway run. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board ourselves and we did a small production at a lovely little theater in Atlanta called Horizon Theater back in, gosh, 2017, maybe 2018, and made some changes that refined some things that that we'd always wanted to to fix about the show. And so, yeah, now we, we're sort of on the hunt for for new producers for it. And and actually, similarly, we were having some of those conversations in early 2020, maybe on track to do a workshop of it that spring. And then, you know, all of theater and society shut down for a while. So so hopefully those conversations can start again soon. Edamar Moses, during the pandemic, which is now two years what have you been up to? What have you been doing? Have you been working on TV shows, on plays? I mean, what do you do when you're stuck in Brooklyn? It's a good question because on the one hand, theoretically, you suddenly have all the time in the world to write, right? But but writing is sort of a response to the world, a way of making sense of the world. And I've never been a writer who's who's great at immediately writing about what's going on right now. I need some time and I need some perspective. And so the first year, honestly, felt like an imposed work stoppage, (laughs) which forced me to kind of get more zen just about life. You know, I mean, first of all, I was grateful that I was in a position where, you know, I could kind of hunker down and keep things very simple. So I got some writing done, but I did, I wasn't, I, I, I was neither completely paralyzed, nor was I especially productive during that first year of the lockdown. It was less about getting a lot of writing done and more about how it shifted my relationship to my writing or like my sense of what's important. You know, you can get onto sort of a hamster wheel of trying to be productive and trying to keep getting work out there and stay in the mix, et cetera. And it kind of was a reminder that none of that really matters. And that you need to let things get quiet enough to even hear your own internal voice that tells you what, if anything, you have to say. So the first year was sort of about that. Film and television have come back first and theater a little bit more tentatively. But as stuff has started to come back, I'm trying not to forget that lesson, right, as things start to get a little busier again. The concrete answer is that I have been writing. I have a new play that might premiere within the next year. It was supposed to premiere last year and then was delayed because theaters weren't really doing stuff. That could happen as soon as this fall or next winter or spring. So I might come back with that. I'm working on another musical that I I don't want to say too much about yet, but it, that might premiere sometime in 2023. So things are happening. And then on the TV front, there's a novel by Curtis Sittenfeld who wrote Prep and American Wife and some other books. She recently wrote a novel called Rodham which is about sort of a parallel fictional speculative history in which Hillary Rodham never marries Bill Clinton. And it's kind of about how her life and his life in the history of American politics might have been different as a result. And I'm in the writer's room for that on Zoom. One thing that's happened to writer's rooms is now they happen on Zoom. 
And we're trying to adapt that novel as a 12, 13 episode series for Hulu. So we're still in the writing phase and we'll see if the show actually gets produced, but that's sort of been keeping me busy day to day. One thing about the band's visit, getting back to that, is that it's an unusual play in the representation of Middle Eastern actors. And that brings in the idea that politics have played a much larger role, particularly the politics of race and gender and ethnicity. How has that incorporated or changed your own work over the course of the past two years and maybe even a little further back? It's a complicated question. I'm Jewish. My parents are immigrants. But in terms of like broad identification culturally, I think I am perceived as, and my work has been perceived as the work of, like a straight white male writer. And I think that it would be dishonest to pretend that someone who identifies that way didn't benefit enormously from it because you just look at the numbers of what kinds of plays get produced, who they're by, what they're about. And there's a way in which whiteness and and maleness and youth, like there's all kinds of things in our culture, you know, those aren't race and gender aren't the only ones, but certain things are seen as a kind of universal default voice and certain other things are seen as a kind of niche, right? And there's a limited number of slots for the niche voices. And that's historically how it's been. Now what's beginning to happen is that we're getting more granular about identity and about who has the right to tell what story and, you know, and everything is sort of being treated as a niche and in an overdue way, like straight white male storytelling is maybe beginning to be treated as a niche. And I think some people resist this and are really threatened by it. I don't. I think that on a case by case basis, people can make decisions from a place of good faith or from a place of bad faith. And you can always find examples of overcorrection or whatever, right? But broadly speaking, I think two things. I think first of all, it can only make my own writing better if I'm forced to think about my own perspective and all of my lenses in a detailed way and then still try to to write well and with nuance and with subtlety and with complexity. And so I think it has affected my writing by making me wrestle with some deeper questions. I think it's also going to make people more responsible and maybe think twice and maybe a third time. Even though it may seem that way, I don't think anyone is really advocating for a world in which the only story you can possibly tell is literally your own story. Otherwise, no plays would exist other than monologues performed by the playwright themselves about their own life, right? So no one's actually advocating for that because that's absurd. So what is the question? And I think people often confuse the fact that people are allowed to respond to your work with being silenced. But until somebody comes into my house and takes my hands off the keyboard, no one's actually silencing me. I think it's like a really volatile time, but out of that volatility, I hope will come some really good work. It has definitely changed the way that I think in a way that I think has challenged me in positive ways. What about the entire move toward fascism under Trump and now the Republican Party? Does that politics come into your work? I mean, well, every night when I go to bed, it's there. It's really happening, right? So it's affected my work in that it's it is that it can make you despair, which will make you do no work at all, 
So that's not productive, but you also have to give yourself the space to feel whatever feelings you have about the genuinely scary things that are going on. In terms of the work itself, I think there are some writers who are really good at turning around at a time like this and immediately writing a brilliant satire of Trump or of or of this or that aspect of politics or, or a brilliant satire of maybe self-immolation on the left or whatever it is, right? I, I don't think that's the way my sort of muse works. I'm more of the opinion that all good storytelling is inherently humanistic, right? Every really good story with characters that we can connect to is about triggering empathy in the audience. And I think that is inherently one of our antidotes to things like the rise of fascism. The band's visit is a great example because when we first opened it at the Atlantic, like you said, at the dates of the beginning of the interview, we opened in the fall of 2016. Like the 2016 election happened when we were in tech about to start previews off Broadway. So when we first opened the band's visit, everyone reacted to it as though we'd somehow written this very prescient piece of theater about people crossing a border and being welcomed, right? About strangers welcoming each other rather than being suspicious of each other and shutting each other out, which seemed, right, like this very well you know, thought out response to what was happening politically. But of course, we'd been working on the show for years. Now, as the show starts to tour again, and I start to talk to audiences or journalists in various cities we're going to, people are reacting as though you know, the show is a is a really interesting lens on our experience of having gone through this pandemic. And so obviously the show wasn't written as a response to either of those things. But I think what happens is that if you write something truthful and that wrestles with life's actual complexity, it will always seem like a response to things like fascism. Because fascism is about really, really simplifying the world into us and them, into good and bad, into not questioning or doubting what's presented to you as like the appropriate beliefs of your tribe, whatever it is, right? If I think about how do I respond to literally what's going on now, I mean, and politics aside, climate change, I mean, all of it, it's just paralyzing. So for me, I have to sort of simplify it to truthful storytelling, nuanced storytelling, pieces of writing that really take stock of your own inner complexity. Also, we're making theater, even television, which happens faster and has wider reach. Like if you wanted to stop the rise of fascism, it's hard to think of a less effective way to do it than writing a play. But that's not to say that it's not an important part of the moral matrix that keeps us all attuned in the right way. Itamar Moses, the band's visit, the musical, is there any interest in turning that into a film? You know, it sounds like a funny question because it would be a film adaptation of a musical adaptation of a film, (laughs) but we have had at least some preliminary conversations about the possibility of trying to do that, of taking, you know, our original Broadway cast and doing some sort of filmed version of the musical. I don't know, you know, people are doing that in all kinds of ways now, right? You you can do an actual film adaptation, a la West Side Story. You could do a sort of capture of the stage experience like they did with Hamilton. So we have had some of those conversations, but They were very preliminary to begin with, and then in turn, of course, now have been delayed for a couple of years. So who knows? I wouldn't say no. I think it would be fun. You've been listening to an interview with Itamar Moses, who wrote the book for The Band's Visit, 
which is playing in San Francisco at the Golden Gate through February 6th. And for more information, you can go to broadwaysf.com. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.